Agus Giadiv. Welcome to The Irish in Canada, the podcast exploring the histories and legacies of Irish immigrants and their Canadian descendants. I'm your host, Jane McGaughy. This is episode number three, Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan. The date was March 17th, 1834. As often happens in Montreal, the winter had turned nasty. An icy cold snap had hit the island a week earlier, and snow had fallen that morning. Despite the bad weather, a number of Irishmen in the city met that night at McCabe's Hotel for a grand dinner, a bit of drinking, some music, singing, and a remarkable number of public toasts, 23 in all, including to Ireland as she ought to be, great, glorious, and free, to the king, to O'Connell and the repeal of the union, to Papineau and the majority of the House of Assembly of Lower Canada, to union among Irishmen and Canadians, and to the fair sex. This was the inaugural meeting of the St. Patrick's Society of Montreal, an organization with a non-sectarian and ostensibly apolitical philosophy. One of the key individuals honored that night in March 1834 was Dr. Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan, a well-known surgeon who had arrived in Montreal one year earlier as the new editor of the Vindicator and Canadian Advertiser, the most popular English-language newspaper in the city. O'Callaghan and the other revelers left McCabe's hotel at midnight, quote, after an evening spent in harmony, patriotic enjoyment, and much real pleasure, end quote. The next year was a very different affair. The 1835 St. Patrick's Day dinner honored Irish Tories in Montreal, including the society's president, John Donnellan. Rather than toast to Louis-Joseph Papineau, the increasingly radical leader of Le Parti Patriote, glasses were raised to the king, the queen, and the royal family, to the army and the navy, and to Governor and Lady Aylmer. Writing in The Vindicator that month, Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan was incensed, holding that St. Patrick's Day had been taken over by the Orangemen and Tories of Montreal. Oh, he wrote, these Tories are good at a trick. An Irishman dining at that table will have to wash himself many times before he comes a true Irishman. He also worried about the Irish women who would be attending the dinner, adding, quote, We hope the women will decline the invitation. A drunken debauch is not a scene for ladies' eyes. End quote. In opposition to this capital C conservative gathering, O'Callaghan held a separate St. Patrick's Day dinner at Murphy's Hotel. Toasts that night were made to the king, may he always deserve the love of the people, to the people, the true source of all political power, and to Ireland, may she soon take her place among the nations of the earth. As the evening rolled on, another speech emphasized, quote, the misrule which Ireland and Canada have experienced at the hand of England due to all the evil doers of the empire. End quote. Many of our previous episodes have featured Irish supporters of the British Empire, Orangemen, the Gowans, Colonel James Fitzgibbon, or Irish immigrants to Canada who were fairly indifferent to which flag flew over them, people like Grace Marks or the Shiners or asylum inmates. We've been missing something. 
Today, we're going to look at an Irish nationalist. A lot of Irish immigrants to British North America were distinctly unhappy about the Crown's treatment of Ireland. In the years leading up to the 1837 Lower Canadian Rebellion, that discontent gained a face and a name. Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan, doctor, newspaper editor, politician, political radical, and eventually, rebel leader. I think that O'Callaghan was the most important Irishman in Lower Canada before the 1840s. His devotion to the Parti Patriote and Louis-Joseph Papineau made it seem as if there would be widespread Irish Catholic support for the rebellion, and that together, French Canadians and Irish Catholics could change the course of history. But to start, we need to do a little bit of backstory, since O'Callaghan kind of shows up in the middle of things. More than 200,000 Irish families had arrived in Lower Canada, today's province of Quebec, before the Great Irish Famine. By the end of the 1820s, Irishmen made up more than 50% of the Anglophone population in Montreal. French Canadians and Irish Catholics alike received religious toleration under the 1774 Quebec Act, but they didn't speak the same language and often had rivalries over jobs and housing. The colonial establishment and most of Upper Canada, however, were Protestant. Individual Irish Catholics achieved notable positions in running the empire. Dominic Daly of County Galway, for instance, was provincial secretary in Lower Canada before becoming the governor first of Prince Edward Island and then South Australia. And Thomas Darcy McGee was the Irish father of Canadian Confederation. But Irish Catholics were still often suspected en masse of being disloyal, disruptive, and undesirable in quote-unquote civilized society. But Louis-Joseph Papineau, the leader of French-Canadian reformers, saw great potential in the Irishmen arriving in Lower Canada. Papineau welcomed comparisons to Ireland's famous politician Daniel O'Connell, and he formed strong friendships with the Vindicator's first two Irish editors, Jocelyn Waller and Daniel Tracy, that highlighted the comparable oppressions the Irish and the French-Canadians had faced under British rule. Now, Daniel Tracy is really fascinating. Look for him in season three. He'd trained as a doctor before becoming a newspaper editor and voice for reform in the colony. However, he died in the 1832 cholera epidemic after tending to the Irish suffering in Montreal's fever sheds. This left an opening at the newspaper, and the man chosen to take over was O'Callaghan. Like Tracy, Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan trained as a doctor before moving to Lower Canada in 1823. He worked at Quebec City's L'Hôpital Près de Ville during the 1832 cholera epidemic. But he had always been politically active. When the opportunity came to replace Tracy in Montreal, he traded his medical bag for a printing press and became the editor of The Vindicator. A year later, he was also elected to the Lower Canadian House of Assembly. Now, some of you might remember that I got a little bit silly about James Fitzgibbon last season and his resemblance to a certain actor from Ballymena. Some people from the 19th century just leap off the page at you. Look at today's show notes. 
Daniel O'Connell's portraits practically scream, look at my cute curly hair. And most drawings of Charles Stuart Parnell have him looking like he's on the cover of an Irish bodice ripper. In the one image I've seen of Daniel Tracy, he looks windblown, like he just walked down Avenue Atwater. Louis-Joseph Papineau had these big brown eyes that clearly suffered no fools. And O'Callaghan? Well... In O'Callaghan's entry in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, historian Jacques Monet refers to him as a, quote, serious, thin, pale man, totally lacking in elegance, and with nothing physically attractive about him, end quote. I think his portrait makes him appear like a bespectacled cousin of Karl Marx or Walt Whitman. Take a look and let me know what you think. Regardless of what he looked like, O'Callaghan's prose was undeniably sharp. Under his editorship, The Vindicator was a four-page, bi-weekly paper with his own editorial commentary in each issue. His contempt for British authority in the province was obvious in his critiques of governors Aylmer and Gosford, also both Irishmen, and he used satire and blatant outrage to attack Orangemen. He once claimed that Ogilgown's love of violence had given Canada, quote, a sample of that ferocious orange spirit which has deluged Ireland with blood, end quote. O'Callaghan quickly became Papineau's right-hand man in the house and in the press. He used the Vindicator to highlight the numerous similarities the Irish shared with French Canadians, noting that, quote, Papineau is to Canada what O'Connell is to Ireland. And he was right. There were a lot of similarities. Both regions had large Catholic majorities whose first language was not English. Their daily lives were controlled by a Protestant minority population whose power came from seizing land after a conquest. O'Callaghan warned that threats to lower Canada's liberties would eventually turn the province, quote, into a second Ireland, end quote. By 1837, the colony had reached a boiling point. As historian Alan Greer has pointed out, while the Canadian colonies never experienced an actual revolution, Lower Canada in 1837 was as close as they ever came. O'Callaghan's most famous editorial came in the spring of 1837, following Britain's rejection of Papineau's resolutions for reform in the colony. O'Callaghan titled it, Hurrah for Agitation, and more or less called for anarchy in the streets. He ended with a diatribe against the British in Lower Canada. Quote, Henceforth, there must be no peace in the province, no quarter for the plunderers. Agitate, in italics. Agitate, in all caps. Agitate, all caps with three exclamation points. Destroy the revenue, denounce the oppressors. Everything is lawful when our fundamental liberties are in danger. The guards die, they never surrender. End quote. There is debate among historians about whether or not this was a direct call to arms. I think O'Callaghan was not necessarily a violent man personally, but through his printing press, he was something of an instigator. 
At the end of October of 1837, the pro-British Doric Club held a rally of 4,000 loyalist supporters in Montreal, where they vowed, quote, that the Irish inhabitants of this city do hereby express their unqualified abhorrence of the low and base attempts to draw them over to the Revolutionary Party, end quote. They swore to crush any rebellion. Two weeks later, on November 6th, Doric Club supporters broke into the Vindicator's offices and smashed the press. Joseph Schull's quote captures what it must have been like for O'Callaghan the next morning on finding his ruined workplace. Quote, The meager, spectacled, waspish little man had lost his occupation with his type and his presses. He seemed to have lost his sting. End quote. Knowing that they were about to be arrested, Papineau and O'Callaghan fled Montreal on November 13, 1837, to the village of Saint-Denis, meeting up with about 800 Patriot militiamen and armed civilians loyal to their cause. Ten days later, British troops descended upon the rebel forces. Only the night before, the two leaders had walked among their supporters, talking with them as darkness fell, bolstering their courage. It always makes me think of that scene in Henry V before the Battle of Agincourt, a little touch of Louis in the night. In one of the biggest military upsets in decades, the Patriot defeated the mighty British army. Papineau and O'Callaghan, however, were nowhere to be found. They had already slipped across the border into Vermont, escaping to the United States. The flight of Papineau and O'Callaghan on the eve of the first battle of the 1837 rebellion is controversial. William Lyon Mackenzie, leader of the Upper Canadian Rebellion, thought it was an extremely cowardly act. Allegedly, O'Callaghan came downstairs from the house where he and Papineau had spent the night and asked for two horses to be saddled. They then, quote, walked through the kitchen to the back of the house so as not to be observed, mounted the horses and started off, leaving their friends in the middle of the fight, end quote. According to Mackenzie's version of the events, neither Papineau nor O'Callaghan had told anyone what they were about to do. Papineau's nephew countered this, claiming that the military leader Dr. Wilfred Nelson had told them to leave because they were too valuable to the cause to risk being captured. In any event, they left before the battle began. If I could go back in time and ask O'Callaghan one question... It would be about this decision. Remember, before his time at the Vindicator, O'Callaghan had been a doctor and would have taken a version of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. He could have remained at the Battle of Saint-Denis as a surgeon and used his medical expertise to help the wounded. Staying behind, however, might also have signed his death warrant. Many captured rebels were hanged in the weeks that followed. We don't know why Dr. O'Callaghan made that choice, but I wish we did. After their surprising loss at Saint-Denis, the British army regrouped and defeated Les Patriotes at the battles of Saint-Charles and Saint-Eustache. Like the aftermath of the 1798 Irish Rising, there were a lot of executions after the Canadian rebellions, and there was one more similarity 
that the Canadas and Ireland were to share. Union. In order to make sure that violent uprisings of this kind would not happen again in Lower or Upper Canada, the British took a page from their playbook on dealing with Ireland and passed an act of union. Instead of the forced marriage of Great Britain and Ireland in 1801, this was the creation of the United Province of Canada, pushing the two colonies together in a move that satisfied absolutely no one. As for the rebels, well, Canada has a funny thing about rebels. To quote the late Kildare Dobbs, many Canadians grow up with a certain tender feeling for rebels and revolutionaries, provided they have been dead for a long time. Those tender feelings for Papineau and William Lyon Mackenzie returned earlier than scheduled in the new province of Canada. Within 15 years, both rebel leaders had been re-elected. Mackenzie's grandson, William Lyon Mackenzie King, became Canada's longest-serving prime minister, and Papineau now has his own holiday. While the rest of the country celebrates Victoria Day in May, La Belle Province celebrates La Journée Nationale des Patriotes. And O'Callaghan? He never returned to live in Canada. He visited Papineau from time to time, but his life was now in America, and he took on a new role as the public archivist for the state of New York. As the editor of the Vindicator newspaper, he had been the most powerful Irishman in Lower Canada, a man of the people, devoted to the cause of reform. As an exile from Canada, he became a librarian, a chronicler of history rather than a creator of it. Then again, maybe I'm not being fair. Maybe O'Callaghan was still something of a rebel, still a bit dangerous. After all, librarians and archivists are the ones who decide what we remember as history in the first place. Next time on The Irish in Canada, we'll look at another Irish story from the Canadian rebellions, a tale of an American invasion, mutilated corpses, hangings, wild pigs, and, you guessed it, Ogle Gowan. Thanks for listening to The Irish in Canada. The show was researched, written, and narrated by me, Jane McGaughy. This season was edited and mixed by Patrick McMaster and produced by Marion Mulvenna. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Bevan Baker, and our logo was designed by Claire McCauley. Many thanks to the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, the Canadian Irish Studies Foundation, Le Gouvernement de Québec, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for their support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favourite podcast app. You can spread the word about the Irish in Canada by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Irish Canada Pod. Our website is the Irish in Canada Podcast.ca. That's where you can find show notes for our episodes, including lists of sources and recommendations for further reading. Until next time, Gora Maage.